0: Good morning. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson. Hudson, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, think tank dedicated to the proposition that global security requires strong and engaged U.S. international leadership in partnership with our allies. Now, as we head into the final few weeks of negotiations towards the end of the month for an agreement, with Iran over its nuclear programs, major and frankly disturbing questions have been left unanswered. These include the number of centrifuges Iran would be allowed to keep under an agreement, how long such an agreement might last, what an inspection regime might look like, uh, how sanctions, when and if sanctions would come off of the Iranian regime. Now, we at Hudson have done a significant amount of work on uh, these negotiations with Iran, most notably, I should point out Michael Duran's, senior fellow Michael Duran's important article, Obama's secret Iran strategy, which argues that the administration is seeking a rapprochement with Iran through these negotiations and is less interested in preventing Iran from gaining nuclear capacity. Mike's article can be found either at Hudson.org or at, uh, at the Mosaic magazine, where it's been downloaded over 220,000 times and has become a must-read in the policy community. Now, we also at Hudson have had a long track record of research and outreach on nuclear issues, dating back to our founder, Herman Kahn, who was perhaps best known for his work thinking the unthinkable, trying to imagine the immense dangers that were imminent in the Cold War as the U.S. and the Soviet Union developed nuclear arsenals and ran the risk of both escalation and unintended escalation. Kant's pioneering work and the work at Hudson in the 1960s and 70s helped shape civil and missile defense, and the work continues today with this panel and with the addition of our newest adjunct fellow, Rebecca Heinrichs, uh, who has been a longtime leader uh, on the congressional staff side, uh, having uh, founded the bipartisan Missile Defense Caucus. And it's also continuing with the research work of senior fellow Bill Schneider, the former undersecretary of state for arms control in the Reagan administration, who is doing an important project for us on the second nuclear age. Now, one of the most important issues, important elements uh, in any weapons system is the delivery mechanism. And while the broad outline of the nuclear deal has inspired an intense debate on a critical range of issues, left almost completely out of focus so far has been Iran's missile capacity. Despite UN resolutions that forbid the development and testing of nuclear delivery systems, Iran has continued its missile program unabated and currently has the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East. To examine Iran's missile program in the context of the, the missile deal, the nuclear deal, pardon me, we've assembled a panel of distinguished experts that include uh, Michael Eisenstadt, the Director of Military and Security Studies, at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Dr. David Cooper, Professor of National Security Affairs at the Naval War College, Dr. Thomas Caraco, Senior Fellow for International Security and the Project on Nuclear Issues at uh, CSIS. And to open this this discussion, we have the distinct honor of hearing from Representative Ron DeSantis, a decade-long veteran of the U.S. Navy, served with distinction in Iraq, and uh, who represents the 6th District of Florida, Representative uh, DeSantis has worked his way through college, graduating with honors from Yale and also from Harvard Law School. He currently serves as a Lieutenant Commander in the US Naval Reserve. In the House of Representatives, he chairs the Oversight Committee's National Security Subcommittee. And as I think many of us here today know, he is also seeking to add a new title to his uh, very uh, distinguished resume, that of US Senator from the state of Florida. Today, we have the uh, good fortune to hear from him as he discusses the relevance of Iran's missile program to its larger strategic objectives and the importance of incorporating missiles which function as nuclear delivery systems into the final deal. We're honored to have him here with us today, and I ask everyone to give him a warm Hudson Institute welcome.
1: Well, thank you for that. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for having me. and. Um, uh, thanks for the, the panelists. Um, you know, some of you have been before the Committee on Foreign Affairs and have done a great job. Uh, I think it's important just to start with um, what is the understanding that we bring to the table about the Iranian regime? And for me, and I think the majority of my colleagues in the Congress, uh, we see the Iran's leadership as being dedicated to a militant Islamic ideology that is inherently antagonistic to the United States. Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism throughout the world. They killed, at a minimum, hundreds of U.S. service members during American operations in Iraq. And during my time there in 2007, 2008, um, I can tell you they were the leading cause uh, through the the, uh, Shiite militias that they supported. Uh, And, of course, they foment unrest in jihad in Lebanon, Syria, the Gaza Strip, Iraq, uh, and Yemen. Um, I think part of the reason why what the administration is trying to do is meeting so much resistance on a bipartisan basis is I think underneath uh, what they're trying to do is an assumption that Iran could be kind of brought into the civilized world and become even a productive force for regional stability. Um, And I think somebody like uh, President Obama sees Iran's belligerence as um, a somewhat rational response to U.S. policy historically. And you can look back, and the President himself has cited CIA involvement in the 1953 uh, uh, de- uh, deposition of the uh, Prime Minister, and, of course, Americans' log-standing policy supporting the Shah. Um, and I think this explains why the President would uh, write letters directly to Ayatollah Khamenei from the moment he got into office. And, um and I don't know why he was, he was writing the letters. Uh, maybe uh, Hillary warned him about the perils of using email. Um, but I think that what you've seen from the very beginning is a real desire to have a grand rapprochement with Iran. And I think this explains some of the concessions Uh, that the administration has made to iran during the course of these negotiations because i think they really want a deal because they think the deal will mean iran can start to change and some of the concessions uh, that we've been examining in the congress um, are really major major concessions that represent going across a red line that the President himself has laid down. For example, the underground fortified facility at Fordow. The President was quoted as saying not too long ago, we know that they don't need to have an underground fortified facility like Fordow. and neither to have a peaceful nuclear program. Yet, under the proposed agreement as we understand it now, Fordow remains. Um, Now, they'll say it's only for academic research, but why would you need to fortify academic research institution under a bunker? I don't think you would. The heavy water reactor in Iraq, Obama said they certainly don't need a heavy water reactor at Iraq in order to have a peaceful nuclear program, but under the proposed agreement, the heavy water reactor in Iraq um, remains advanced centrifuges the president said they don't need some of the advanced centrifuges that they currently possess in order to have a limited peaceful nuclear program but again Iran is going to be able to maintain those advanced centrifuges and so so those are significant concessions that have been made to Iran Um, but I think this program is really valuable because you know, the missile program of Iran is something that never has even seemed to be uh, seriously discussed throughout the course of these negotiations, and it's a very, very significant issue. Now, the White House's initial position was that this would be included. Uh, Jay Carney, who is still the White House press secretary in February of 2014, said that Iran – um, has to deal with matters related to their ballistic missile program that are included in the UN Security Council resolution, and so there was an acknowledgement that this is an important issue, uh, and, and there was a recognition, I think, even on the part of the administration, of the nexus between nuclear we- uh, nuclear warheads and the delivery systems. Um, President Rouhani would never consider this. He said Iran's missile capability is is by no means negotiated. Um, and so I think that this is a major, major shortcoming um, of these negotiations. And this may be, to not even raise this issue, uh, may rank as even a bigger concession than the concessions about Fordo, the concessions about Iraq, uh, heavy water reactor, the concessions about the advanced centrifuges. Um, and I don't know that Iran getting these concessions, I don't think they even had to make a donation to the Clinton Foundation. They still were able to get the concessions. And so um, we are in a situation in where this agreement um, is something that I think is going to meet with a lot of stiff resistance in Congress. And, and one of the reasons should be because uh, of the Iran's missile program. I mean, their missile arsenal undermines international and regional security because these ballistic missiles can be used as a delivery mechanism, for nuclear and other unconventional weapons. Uh, DNI Clapper was uh, uh, in testimony recently, before the Congress, uh, said that in his judgment, Iran would use a ballistic missile as its preferred vehicle to deliver a nuclear weapon uh, if they were able to acquire them. Now, I think the State Department, what they've tried to say at this point, because there had been a recognition this was important, the State Department has said, well, We're not so much worried about ballistic missiles per se, we're simply worried about a missile being combined with a nuke. So, in other words, if we can verify that there's not a uh, ballistic missile with a nuke actually attached, then if the fact that they're uh, building more um, advanced missiles is not something that really needs to be considered in the course um, of the negotiations. But, of course, a warhead that Iran may develop at, say, one of the secret military facilities, which the inspectors likely will not have access to under this deal, um, that could easily be paired with a missile whenever Iran decides that that is something that they want to do. Um, And even taking away the nuclear issue, Iran's missile capacity allows Iran to exercise undue influence in the region and allows Iran to intimidate Um, neighboring countries. And so it's a very, very significant issue, even if you think that the nuclear issue um, is going to be dealt with um, in an acceptable way. And I would note that when you're talking about these types of agreements where verification is so important and and there's a a, a serious questions about whether um, we're going to have access to really any of the sites when we need it, but certainly some of the sites, um, it's a lot easier to verify uh, when you're talking about limiting the delivery systems. And I think that an inspections regime would have a better chance to succeed um, if you had the missile program um, as part of that. Um, Iran's ballistic program does represent a threat to our security interests here in the United States. one of the things I do on the on the Oversight National Security Committee is look to see how our agencies are preparing for certain threats that we may see coming down the pike. One of the ones that we 've dealt with recently is the potential for an EMP attack and whether we 're um, successfully or, or adequately prepared to to mitigate that or to prevent it from happening um, and There have been Iranian military documents uh, where they make reference repeated references to um, debt using a nuclear uh, warhead sending it over the United States uh, with a missile, detonating it at however many miles uh, above uh, the surface, and trying to fry our electric grid. And if you're looking at a country um, like Iran, or if you're looking at a terrorist group that may be acting as a proxy um, doing an EMP-type attack, that actually does give give them a lot of bang for their buck. Because if we're not ready for that, the damage could be very, very uh, severe. you know, given Iran's ideology, as steeped as it is in uh, a really an apocalyptic form of Islam, um, it may well be that for Iranians, mullahs, the concept of mutually assured destruction uh, is, in the words of historian Bernard Lewis, less of a deterrent for them than a potential inducement. Um, and so this is very, very significant when you're talking about a regime that is potentially on the path to nuclear weapons, but then will have more sophisticated (coughs) missiles with which they can deliver them. We, in the Cold War, we had um, kind of an understanding, the Soviet Union, us, nobody wanted to kind of go down in a blaze of glory. Um, And and, reasonable people will disagree about how apocalyptic they are, but the possibility is, is that they cannot be deterred using traditional deterrence. And so I think that when the Iran deal, assuming one is reached, is brought before Congress under the procedures laid out in the Corker bill that was recently passed, um, I think that you will find a lot of very tough questions. I think you'll see bipartisan resistance. Um, I, in my judgment, I think the fact that the missile system has not been dealt with at all um, is going to represent one of the biggest strikes against this agreement. Um, and I think it's something that the Congress needs to scrutinize, and I think that we need to elevate this issue um, as much as we can. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to come and, uh, and offer a few uh, words. Um, you have a great panel here, and um, definitely look forward to hearing what they have to say. So thank you all for having me.
2: If you wouldn't mind, saying for answering a couple questions oh, yeah, for us, okay. would that be okay? Uh, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and uh, take the liberty to ask the first question. And then, um, and then perhaps if we have a couple of uh, questions from the audience, we'll have time for that as well. Should we pass just it over to him? Oh. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, sir, thank you so much for laying that out for us so well. I think um, one of the uh, uh, important themes that you have been um, talking about on this issue is connecting the ideology or the nature of the regime with the capability, with the the weapons that they have. I think that that is something that's been missed with this administration. They're they're strictly looking at the capability that the country might have on doing harm, and they're not looking at what the will is of the country. And I think that you have done such an excellent job at raising that um, and painting a very um, nice picture for us. Um, you talked a little bit about what Congress might do, or uh, some, possibly some bipartisan resistance to a deal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What do you think um, there's a difference between kind of what the House is doing and what the Senate is doing? But moving forward, um, the, the uh, deal is supposed to, um, the deadline is now June 30th. We could have a, um, another extension. But what can Congress do now? And, um, and what do you see, um, do you see uh, Democrats actually pushing back on the administration and saying, hold on, we've got some um, further questions?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think as of this point, I mean, I can only speak for being on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, a lot of the questions that I'll see asked when we do, and we've done a lot of Iran oversight. Uh, we've really tried to elevate this issue. Um, a lot of the questions are very similar across the aisle. Uh, I think that there's bipartisan skepticism um, about this deal. Now, under the framework and the way that the, the, the Corker uh, bill was enacted, um, you we're were going to be able to vote to essentially disapprove the deal. Uh, I, I think that, that those disapprovals will, will pass both chambers. Obviously, the President will veto that. And um, I would imagine he'd be able to hold 34 senators uh, to sustain his veto. Um, and I probably would be able to hold uh, a significant number of House members. I don't know if he'd be able to hold one-third or more. Um, but I think that it will be the type of thing where um, – I don't think you'll see Republicans supporting the deal, any Republicans. I do think you'll see uh, Democrats, uh, some Democrats be opposed to the deal. Um, And then what you'll end up having, and it goes back to to Tom Cotton's letter, is because it's not ratified as a treaty by the Senate and because, or as an international agreement passing both houses of Congress and getting a president's signature, so it's part of the governing law, uh, you basically are going to have an executive to an executive agreement, uh, which I'm. Sure, the administration will want to honor uh, for the rest of of its tenure, but then uh, when the new president comes in, they will essentially be able to to cancel uh, the deal because it's not going to have been part of the binding law. And I think because of that, if it plays out uh, that way, I think this will be a very important campaign issue in the presidential election of 2016 about how do you go forward um, on this. Is this good for our security or not? Um, and the fact that it's happened this way, I think it's going to tee it up.
2: Great. Thank you so much. I'd like to take a couple of questions from the audience. If you could just raise your hand and then we'll get a microphone to you. Um, if we don't have another one, then I have another one. But we do have another one right here. If you wouldn't mind just stating your name and your affiliation.
0: Fred Flight with the Center for Security Policy. Uh, Congressman, thank you for your remarks. Um, Ali Hanonen, who is, uh, you probably know, is a former IAEA official, has said that Iran cannot explain why it is enriching uranium. There's no peaceful purpose. Would you agree that there cannot be a meaningful agreement with Iran that allows it to continue to enrich uranium?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, they're sitting on centuries' worth of oil and gas. They don't need to to have any type of nuclear capacity for for power generation or for, for their economy. It's just not necessary, um, and it's something that they're doing. And look, they're they're behaving rationally in this. I mean, they realize that if they could acquire nuclear weapons, I mean, that would obviously cement the regime in power and allow it to uh, have even more influence uh, throughout the region. So, and the thing is, the UN used to say no enrichment. I mean, that had been the position. And now we've backed off of that, or the administration has backed off of that so much to where they're really going to be able to maintain a significant nuclear infrastructure. Um, and then the hope is, is that we'll be able to limit enrichment enough so that we can see if they eventually you know, break out. But even if that is somehow successful, at the end of the deal, you've left them a threshold nuclear state.
3: Hi, Aaron Paul from the National Iranian American Council. What do you say to the idea that continuing sanctions will empower hard- hardliners in Iran?
1: Well, what I would say is that when we had the sanctions in place, um, you know, it was the regime that was buckling under those, and they were they were coming to the table. And so, in the House, we passed well about twenty months ago. Now, we passed. Um, an enhanced round of sanctions, and that was not something that, that Harry Reid, when he was Majority Leader, allowed to come to a vote in the Senate, um, but I think the thought was that it was hurting the regime, they needed a lifeline, we turned the screws more, I think it would have been more likely that they would have then offered us concessions, and look, I mean, if, if they're going to destroy the, the facility at Fordo. I'd be happy to vote for some, sanction, some sanctions relief. And then when they get, get dismantle the heavy water reactor, then, then we'll do some more. And I mean, I'm, I'm fine with rewarding um, them for dismantling their nuclear program, but that's not the direction that, that it ended up going. It was unilateral concessions to Iran, um, and really I think what we've seen is, is this whole sanctions regime start to break down. So um, I think that was going back to what the House did in 2013, I think we were right, and I think that the substance of, agree- of the agreement will show that we were right.
2: I think we have time for one more with the congressman. Go over
4: here, Russ Reed and David Milis. Truth, Congressman, thank you for being here. Um, regarding the delivery systems, since President Obama said these are outside the purview of the negotiations, what can Congress do within their abilities to try to mitigate that
5: problem?
1: Well, it's a, it's a good question I mean we um, you know we have uh, some authority but but it's but it's limited authority and um, of course, if we were to do anything that would change policy, then that could be something that is subject to a presidential veto so if he's in a position where he does not want this I mean you remember in the Senate for the for the corker stuff, there were a number of people that wanted to inject some of these issues into uh, the the framework of the negotiations and, and that was you know that didn't come up it was not those amendments were not allowed to be heard and I think the reason was is that the folks who had crafted that agreement knew that that would that that would lead to a presidential veto so it may be that if the president is determined not to deal with the issue it could be hard for the Congress to force it if he can hold a third uh, of either the House or the Senate he probably would be able to do that um, so I think that really uh, people like like me, but then obviously events like this uh, to to raise this issue and elevate its profile. I think that will allow us to potentially have more success down the road. But I think that I think we got a lot of work to do because I think that even though my constituents are concerned with what's going on with Iran and you know two years ago everyone said oh the public doesn't care about foreign affairs anymore all this stuff. A lot of people are very concerned about it, um, but I think that. The extent to which uh, the delivery systems are an integral component of the whole nuclear issue, um, I think we need to do more work uh, in educating the public on that.
2: Thank you so much, Congressman. Will you welcome, join me in welcoming or thanking the Congressman? Thank you. I think that the congressman just did an excellent job of painting a picture for us and kind of kicking off this conversation we have with the rest of our panelists. Um, What I'd like to do is um, provide a little bit more information about um, who we have today. Uh, Michael Eisenstadt is the Kant Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Military and Security Studies Program. He's a specialist in, in Persian Gulf and Arab-Israeli <coughs> security affairs. He has published widely on irregular and conventional warfare and nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East. And there's more information about him, um, I think, in front of you. So um, with that, I'm going to allow uh, Michael to kick us, uh, kick us off. Thank you. Okay.
3: I'll s- deliver from the seat, I guess. Thank you very much. I want to thank Hudson for the invitation um, to uh, speak here today. I thought I would uh, start off by talking a little bit about the role of um, Iran's missiles and actually rocket forces as well in their uh, national security concept and way of war. And the first thing I I guess I would start off by saying is that um, Iran's way of war focuses on deterring and avoiding major conventional conflicts. Um, And this is in part as a result of their experience in the Iran-Iraq War. Um, a war that they call the Imposed War, not only because it was the result of an Iraqi invasion, but because I think at a certain deeper level, it, the whole experience of fighting a major conventional war for eight years is just, um, it, it's just contrary to their whole preferred way of, of going about things. Um, and their preferred way of war is to pursue their anti-status quo agenda through a combination of proxy operations and information operations. And so the missiles play a key role in both deterrence with regard to preventing them from getting in a major conventional conflict and in their uh, um, information activities. And this is something which actually is is more important than I think a lot of people uh, give it credit for in Washington. And I'll discuss a little more in a a minute. So it's, it's absolutely critical for deterrence. And in the event that they get into a major war, it's also absolutely critical for war fighting from their point of view. In terms of their proxies and partners, rockets and missiles are the weapons of choice. Uh, I served in the embassy in Baghdad in 2010, and we got rocketed uh, quite often uh, by special groups um, that were trained by the um, Iranians. Um, rockets and mortars were very important for them, for groups like Hezbollah and Hamas um, as well. Rockets are central to their way of war um, against Israel. Now, in terms of Iran's triad, a deterrent <clears throat> triad, they have a deterrent triad just as Kind of we do theirs is the ability to st- threaten the strait of hormuz the ability to conduct terrorism on multiple continents and long-range strike capabilities and the the missiles and rockets fit into the the third the third kind of leg of their deterrent triad um, and it's really the core uh, component of their third leg and it's and, and overall i would argue that the that their missile force is really the backbone of their strategic deterrent um, the ability to close the Strait of Hormuz is very problematic for them because they'd be cutting off their nose to spite their face if they were to do so. It's your Samson option because they still export uh, a million barrels of oil a day uh, through the Strait and therefore if they were to close the Strait they wouldn't be able to export oil as well. So this is something they only do, they will only countenance if they cannot um, export oil. And terrorism is also somewhat problematic because, ex- except for pre-planned operations, which maybe they could pull out, uh, pull off in the event of a crisis or war, and, and let me just say, we've seen in recent years their ability to do these kind of operations has atrophied, as well as that of um, Hezbollah. And, and you know, I would just reference the uh, series of attacks they tried in early 2012, which were v- were very badly bungled. Um, there's questions about their ability to implement these operations. They're no longer. At least in 2012, they were no longer kind of the A-team of terrorism in terms of their uh, professionalism. Um, and then there's another problem that after you do the initial pre-planned terrorist actions, it might take you several weeks or months to plan a series of follow-up operations. So rockets fill, or, and missiles fill the gap here. Um, missiles enable them to um, achieve um, a, a very high rate or cumulative effects on enemy populations, much more so than terrorism, um, and um, it enables them to act if they are thwarted in in the terrorism arena um, in the event of a crisis or war um, also it's it 's also important uh, to mention that um, although it used to be conventional wisdom that you know, the only reason that they want missiles was for a, as a a WMD delivery capability. I think it's very clear that they see them both as conventional bombardment, strategic bombardment system, as well as a a WMD uh, capable uh, delivery system. And the most important uh, bit of evidence on on the latter point is uh, the development of the Triconic kind of uh, warhead for uh, their family, their recent families of missiles, which is kind of like a, a stepped stepped kind of warhead. It's kind of hard to describe, um, but it's very distinctive. Um, And it's uh, probably done uh, in order to enhance the stability of the reentry vehicle um, during the latter phases of flight. But the diameter of the vehicle fits very nicely with the design of uh, the the nuclear weapon design that it's it's suspected that was passed on to Iran by the A.Q. Khan group. Um, a number of years ago, it's about a 600 millimeter uh, design, and the warhead's about 600. You know, can accommodate a package of 600 millimeter. So the warhead on their on their conventional missiles now has already apparently been designed around. Uh, at least a lot of people speculate has been designed around uh, the uh, the warhead uh, nuclear warhead design that they may have gotten from the AQ Khan network a number of years ago. Um, now. I mentioned that um, the missiles uh, permit a more rapid response than possible by proxy attacks in the event of a crisis or war um, and and their ability to generate greater cumulative effects than can terrorist attacks. I should also mention they're also working on a variety of shorter range missiles uh, for use probably in the Gulf against naval targets. Um, the Khalid Fars, which is a, uh, a modification of the Fajr 5, if I'm correct, or, or the FATAT-110, which is a guided version of the uh, Fajr uh, rocket. And then they have the Hormuz 1 and 2, which is what the Hormuz 1 has an anti-radiation capability um, against either uh, radar, uh, ground radars or, or naval-based radars, and the Hormo- Hormuz 2 is for use uh, against uh, ships in the Gulf. Um, they've also recently unveiled uh, what they call the Sumar ground-launched uh, land-attack cruise missile, which is uh, at least p- apparently uh, modeled or derived from the Reduga <coughs> H-55, which is a Russian uh, cruise missile that they got a number of years ago. And it's interesting, none of these really, when pe- people are talking about um, you know, Iran's ballistic missile program, but we also have to focus on their cruise, cruise missile capabilities as well um, when, when considering uh, uh, you know, possible nuclear delivery systems. They also look at missiles as part of um, their ability to advance their um, uh, strategy of driving wedges in in enemy coalitions. And for a while, they were working on missiles that had the range to to reach Europe. And in fact, under their satellite launch program, they still are working on uh, intermediate range and and ICBM range systems, uh, most likely. Uh, But again, this is important for them to be able to target the Europeans in the event of a crisis and split them off from the U.S., the last point I just wanted to make um, with regard to how they look at their uh, missiles in, in the context of deterrence and warfighting fighting, um, that's one aspect I mentioned, psychological warfare. The, 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 their missiles play a very major role in every military parade they have. Um, they often festoon their missiles with banners uh, threatening death to the United States and Israel. Um, I think the missiles are used kind of as a surrogate for their um, nu- nuclear ambitions. They don't. They, they reject the uh, the claim that they are pursuing nuclear weapons. Um, but if you, you if you demonstrate missiles that look like nuclear delivery systems, and you show to the press nuclear uh, excuse me missile silos that are hardened that have blast doors, um, which on a on a subliminal level these are always associated with uh, <coughs> nuclear delivery systems. I think this is part of their nascent policy of nuclear ambiguity, ambiguity that they're pursuing. So, um, it's, and, and I think you cannot end, underestimate the importance of their missiles in their psychological warfare strategy. Because, in many ways, they see the information line of effort as their decisive line of effort um, for, for the most part uh, in, in, you know, on a day to day basis. And that's why they're always engaged in spins and they give a lot of media coverage to military exercises and parades and the like. I'll just finish up with just one quick policy point and then. Uh, um, to wrap up my comments, um, it would have been preferable that if I think missiles were folded into negotiations. The fact that they're not on the table now, though, I think uh, only further underscores the need for the possible military de- develop, uh, dimensions file to be dealt with in negotiations. But this is a way in which we can get at the issue of R&D related to... Um, the engineering studies that were done on uh, integrating a spherical kind of uh, uh, war, uh, weapons payload into the Shahab uh, warhead that was apparently done uh, more than a decade ago. And it, it, it only underscores the importance that the facilities that were done, that were used for these type of, this type <coughs> of R&D, and that the individuals who are involved in this R, uh, R&D be a subject of uh, monitoring as part of any agreement. So again, if, if missiles are off the table, only underscores the importance of the PMD file as a way kind of through the back door to get at you know, monitoring uh, their missile R&D work, especially with regard to the, the warheads that might be developed to carry nuclear weapons. And that's, uh, I look forward to hearing what uh, my colleagues have to say on these matters. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Um, next we have Dr. David Cooper. <clears throat> he is the chair of the Department of National Security Affairs, the U.S. Naval War College and hold a faculty appointment as the James B. Forrestal Professor of National Security Affairs. Uh, Dr. Cooper?
4: Thank you very much. I'd like to concentrate my remarks uh, following up on some of what the congressman said in terms of the implications uh, of not having uh, specifically intermediate range and beyond ballistic missiles. Uh, So in other words, uh, the uh, most uh, threatening and the most associated with nuclear uh, weapons-capable missiles uh, currently in Iran's arsenal, but more importantly in development uh, in in terms of prospective future systems in the deal. And my bottom line uh, is that that represents a significant flaw of a mission uh, that does raise serious questions about the efficacy of the prospective deal that is coming into focus. Uh, Before I go further, uh, let me say that uh, the views I'm giving are strictly my own and do not represent uh, the views of the Naval War College or indeed any agency uh, or institution. So I I should say that this treating of missiles as separate and secondary uh, is not unusual. As a matter of fact, this is a tendency and has long been a tendency within the nonproliferation community. Uh, Missiles are seen as associated uh, with nuclear weapons, uh, but nonetheless are treated as separate and certainly are treated as a secondary uh, issue a concern, but but secondary, uh, and therefore, what we see in terms of the apparent concession in taking missiles off the table fairly early in this process uh, that the United States uh, has done uh, is is part and parcel with uh, with the historical pattern uh, of of these things, and it should also be noted that this is understandable. Uh, there is a perfectly logical uh, uh, explanation for this, and that is uh, that. Uh, as has been uh, alluded to, if you don't have nuclear weapons, then missiles are relatively harmless, at least in terms of being able to have uh, strategic effects uh, from a military perspective. Uh, and also uh, the idea that if you take care of the nuclear weapon problem, uh, then that's the primary thing. Uh, however, there's, there's a counter argument to this common wisdom. Uh, the counter argument is uh, that missiles really should be viewed as part and parcel of a nuclear capability, particularly if what we 're worried about is not the idea of whether Iran gets a nuclear weapon or two or makes a uh, a strategic ambiguity for nuclear weapon, but if Iran were to make a bolt for serious nuclear weapons power status uh, along the lines of a Pakistan or in India, uh, clearly following in the footsteps of what North Korea is trying uh, to do. And if we think in those terms, then the missiles, far from being peripheral, uh, actually are rather uh, key to the whole uh, solution uh, for the Iranians. So although giving up uh, addressing missiles, I would say, is understandable as a negotiating expediency in order to get yes to the deal. Uh, giving Iran a blanket pass uh, on any and all of its missile programs to include its longest range and most threatening programs in development uh, really does raise some troubling questions uh, about the deal. Uh, So let me briefly note four implications of not having the missiles. Uh, The first is raising doubts about Iran's fundamental nuclear intentions. Developing at least intermediate-range or longer ballistic missiles turns out to be a remarkably accurate litmus test about any state's nuclear intentions. The absence of such programs turns out to be a very accurate predictable, predict, uh, sorry, predictor of the peaceful nature of a state's nuclear weapons program and vice versa. Time and again, real world experience has demonstrated that the long-term time horizons the vast expense and the international taboo of long-range ballistic missile programs, and so I'm not talking about those at short ranges with clear military conventional tactical purposes, but for those longer-range programs, really only make economic, political, or military sense in the broader context of an ambition to become a nuclear weapons power. Nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs have therefore typically been developed hand-in-glove together. And in fact this correlation between the two, uh, with a couple of exceptions that in the end turned out to prove the rule, has been absolute. This is arguably the most absolute indicator of whether a state's nuclear programs are peaceful or are uh, associated uh, with nuclear weapons uh, ambitions. So, Iran does uh, say that their nuclear weapons program is peaceful, but I would argue that the missiles may tell a different story. As has been noted, Iran uh, has a very capable uh, missile force, and the nature and scale of those programs uh, has long belied the peaceful nuclear intentions uh, that Iran claims. In fact, even before there was evidence uh, of a nuclear weapons program, Uh, there was evidence of Iran pursuing these long-range missile programs. So I I would say that if Iran refuses to consider these missile programs, it it raises a real question of why. um, For what reason? What does Iran need these longest-range missile programs for, if not to deliver uh, nuclear weapons? A second implication uh, that has been alluded to is complicating verification of any agreement. Covert nuclear weapons programs are notoriously easy to hide, uh, even with international inspection mechanisms. And consequently, any chance for plausible verification requires very intrusive measures that still may not give high confidence. Uh, And I think this has just been highlighted by the most recent IAEA report um, in the past uh, hours, really, uh, that highlighted uh, (coughs) that uh, Iranian uh, nuclear stockpiles have, in fact, grown. Uh, in the face of what was supposed to be a moratorium, uh, and uh, with no uh, with no indicator of why that 's happened uh, or what the implications uh, might be uh, that 's on page six of today 's New York Times, Chris Bidwell, who I see uh, making a confused face so it didn 't make the front page, uh, but nonetheless a very uh, a very telling point adding Intrusive inspections can help, but it's unlikely to solve the intrinsically difficult challenges of verifying nuclear materials and nuclear warhead weaponization. By contrast, ballistic missile programs are relatively easy to, con- to uh, verify, not needing cooperative measures through national technical means, uh, and certainly the deployment of existing missiles, uh, that's the case. So it's important to remember, when we think about the heyday of nuclear disarmament between distrustful Cold War allies, we weren't actually dealing with nuclear weapons at all or nuclear materials at all. We were dealing with delivery systems in the INF Treaty, in the START Treaty. All those treaties with President Reagan's maxim, trust but verify, they were all about the delivery systems because that's what simplified verification. So the second implication is by not including those missiles, we are complicating the verification problem uh, tremendously. A third uh, implication, and that's taking a break off breakout. Uh, We are down to trying to figure out how to finally calibrate from a technical point of view a year's worth of breakout on nuclear material. The fact of the matter is missile programs, particularly the longest range missile missile programs, uh, tend to be very long-term and difficult propositions. And we have seen that in cases where uh, countries have pursued both, such as North Korea, uh, they've actually achieved nuclear explosive capability before they've achieved a long-range ICBM uh, or or equivalent missile. Uh, so by not including these missiles, we are really uh, complicating that breakout scenario uh, significantly. The last implication is undercutting missile proliferation itself. Uh, You could say, well, we're not including these, so it's a null set. Uh, I would argue that, in fact, by not including these missiles, we are going to actually undercut the missile nonproliferation regime. Most obviously, if the UN sanctions related to missiles are weakened or lifted. But even so, uh, the main instruments of missile nonproliferation, for example, the missile technology control regime, the MTCR, Uh, are uh, very weak on enforcement and uh, rely heavily on national judgment and national determination. And it seems to me uh, very plausible uh, that if Iran is perceived to have been given a clean bill of non-proliferation good health through this nuclear agreement, uh, that it could be an invitation uh, to relax vigilance on uh, missile uh, supply-side export controls particularly if an Iran flush with money uh, from the relaxations of sanctions is paying top dollar uh, for plausibly innocent missile-related technology. So in sum, I would just conclude by saying if Iran has not been asked to give up its missiles, uh, that would be peculiar. Um, I don't suspect that's the case. I suspect this has been uh, a negotiating bridge too far for them. Uh, But it really begs the question of why that should be. Um, particularly for these longest-range systems, uh, where they still have a long way to go um, and still have a lot of money to invest. Why do they need those systems if they are not associated with nuclear weapons? We have seen all this before. We have seen countries who have uh, sincerely repented of a nuclear weapons program. Uh, South Africa, Libya, uh, they have given up missiles in tandem with those nuclear weapons programs. We've also seen a situation where we tried to do much as we're doing now uh, to address a covert nuclear weapons program uh, while leaving uh, aside an overt missile program, and that was North Korea uh, in the agreed framework in the 1990s. And in fact, what happened uh, in the end is North Korea pursued both apace. So I think we really do need to uh, ask these questions and at a minimum uh, put the Iranian regime on the hook to explain what is it they need these long-range missiles for, if not nuclear weapons. Thank
5: you.
2: Thank you. Our final panelist is Dr. Thomas Carrico, who is a senior fellow with the International Security Program and the Project on Nuclear Issues at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, his research focuses on national security, US nuclear forces, missile defense, and public law.
6: Tom? Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you to, uh, to Hudson for hosting this. You know, as I've been listening uh, to everything here, I was struck really by uh, Ken Weinstein's uh, kickoff. Uh, Really, the threshold question of why this matters, if it matters, is the overall picture of Iran's future. Uh, On the one hand, their intentions and our acceptance of them becoming uh, a regional power. Uh, That that question, that pivot question, uh, I think, Affects how you, you judge the delivery system. And, I, and I, I approach this uh, as much about the conventional side as I do about the nuclear. I think the point's been made very well that uh, leaving in place this delivery system with a, with a one year breakout for the nuclear, it, it, it boggles the mind a little bit. Um, it takes a lot longer to build these missiles and test them or to deploy counters to them than it does uh, uh, than a year. Um, but the conventional side, I think, is every bit as important. if. And operating with uh, the assumption that Iran is going to indulge—just, just bear with me for a minute—that they, they will indulge a uh, suspension on the nuclear program for in, in, in some kind of good faith. If you were the neighbors in that uh, area of the world, you're concerned about the conventional military threats. You're concerned about the uh, uh, political uh, and information warfare that was discussed uh, a little bit here. And that, by the way, is why you saw that so heavily emphasized in the GCC summit from a couple weeks ago. Uh, you saw missile defense talked about, you know, and we're not talking about just Israel here, we're talking about the Gulf states. Um, and you also saw their concern, and they were looking for uh, confirmation by the United States that, yeah, we're actually paying attention to the political subversion that Iran's doing in the region, quite independent of the nuclear question. So I'm going to emphasize really the uh, the responses, the so what. What do we do? What could we uh, do? What ought we be doing to all this uh, thing now that uh, the missile delivery system, uh, the various missile programs have been left out of, uh, out of the talks? And I, I appreciate uh, Michael's point, um, uh, especially about the conventional uh, and really the diversity of Iran's <laughs> missile programs. It's not just about the Shahab 3 ballistic missile right? Perhaps that's that's especially important if you're you're looking at the nuclear. But it's the diversity uh, and really the infrastructure that they build up much more broadly. Anti-ship cruise missiles that their proxies used uh, to uh, hit an Israeli ship in in 2006. Anti-ship ballistic missiles uh, that they've tested. Uh, He also mentioned the significantly ranged uh, cruise missile based based apparently on the KH-55. If you're the neighbors to Iran, uh, you're concerned about, I would say, a spectrum of air and missile threats quite independent uh, of the nuclear issue, both political subversion, uh, but also the kinds of threats from from, from these systems. And add to that uh, what in some ways ought to be the most concerning, which is the development of mobile, uh, solid, uh, so, mobile solid missiles. Uh, even if they're not super long range, although actually they're right up there with the, sh- the Shahabs, uh, uh, that kind of mobility leads to surprise, uh, surprise and, and difficult for detection. So let me walk through a handful of really a spectrum of responses. Um, the first, of course, is uh, really, I think what, what David was, was underlying ver- very well, that in theory, the best way to hand, the best way to counter an Iranian missile threat uh, is the, 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 the basket of counterpro of counterproliferation and nonproliferation. If missiles had been in the talks, that would have been, we would be having a very different conversation right now. Um, And as he alluded to, uh, this has been done before. Of course, somebody in the State Department put this in the basket very early on, as we've seen the testimony, actually. um, And you saw it in Libya. You saw it with Saddam's Iraq. You saw it, frankly, with um, various folks in South America. You actually have even seen this because of our concern with stability and because of the indicator of intent. Uh, our bilateral arrangements with, set with South Korea, right? Now, that has been gradually relaxed over the years, but that's, uh, uh, that's significant. In 2004, Gaddafi trucked away a lot of his materials and facilities, but he also agreed to cap his uh, delivery systems to 300 kilometers, uh, the, uh, the, the, the threshold of the MTCR regime, even if not strictly pursuant to it. Um, but we've lost that. So, in some sense, that optimal position is now in the coulda, woulda, shoulda category. The second, since we've failed to do that, is we're, we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to, we're going to be put in the position of continuing to sabotage and and counter in in various uh, means, covert and otherwise, uh, unless solid missile facilities spontaneously combust, unless scientists go missing uh, entirely on their own, uh, that's something they're going to have to keep doing. A third possibility, and I'm talking here not merely for the United States but also for other folks in the region, uh, is strike. And it's, it's in fashion again to talk uh, about left of launch. Right, in the 1990s it was, oh, don't worry about uh, defenses, th- these kinds of things. If we ever get the intel that Saddam is building something, don't worry. We'll take preemptive action. Um, the plausibility of that today, I think just about everyone would, would say, <coughs> Uh, has become even less uh, than in the past. Um, and so you have a lot of interest, not merely, again, for ourselves, but for our partners in the region, in standoff weapons, in F-16, Block 60s. These, these are what folks are talking about. And the joint statement that came out of the, the summit a couple weeks ago um, talked about expediting, uh, expediting arms transfers. That is a piece of that. And guess what? The Russian S-300 sale um, complicates that, right? If you're Iran... If you want to have some kind of complication to the ability of somebody to take out your facilities, missiles, etc., left of launch, then you're going to want those kinds of air defenses. And we can thank our friends, the Russians, for, for that. Um, also, of course, just complicating, and this goes back to the solids, uh, the solid mobile missiles. Um, it's not always that easy. Back in 2006, I think it was, we had every U- intelligence asset of the United States looking at the <laughs> Korean Peninsula. Uh, for the Taipo Dong launch, saw that, but then were surprised when a handful of short-range mobile solid missiles were launched off. The reason is you can move those things around and you, you don't have to have the facilities to, to fuel them like you would uh, big liquid-fueled missiles. So the fact that Iran has, frankly, not only not learned from and, and benefited from a lot of foreign assistance over the years, but have overtaken their mentors, the North Koreans on the solid uh, thing, is, I think, uh, a pretty significant thing as you, the scud hunts in, in Iraq and uh, various times over the years showed the difficulty of that. So just waving your hand and talking about left of launch is a reliable um, uh, option to counter this. Don't worry, we can take it out any we want. I think that's a little bit, uh, a little bit naive. Uh, Admiral Winnefeld at TSIS a couple of weeks ago said just that, that, that left of launch is a luxury that we're not always going to be able to, uh, to have. So that really brings the, uh, the fourth category of, of responses. Uh, and again, if you've gotten here, you've done something wrong. Uh, but that is the active, uh, active and passive uh, defenses. Uh, you know, a big part of the anti-access area denial, A2AD, problem that we face is missile-based. And so that's going to play into, again, going to the conventional missile threat, uh, the proliferation, as, Secretary, uh, as Deputy Secretary Bob Work likes to say, of precision-guided munitions right, that proliferation out to our adversaries, the fruits of the U.S. second offset are now out there for others to salvo type attacks on our forward bases and, and forces abroad. Um, that's going to require, on the one hand, dispersion, distribution, deception, hardening, right, on the, the passive side. But also, of course, this requires active uh, responses, right of launch in the, in the way of missile defenses. and. Our partners now, our partners in the region have put some serious money behind this. Um, The Emiratis, Qataris, Kuwaitis, Saudis, lots of patriots in the region. Uh, The Emiratis are uh, already in the process of getting two THAAD batteries, right? There's interest in investing in longer range (coughs) defenses uh, expressed there. And you saw this really in the GCC summit last Uh, two weeks ago, the White House really, I think, trying to assure and uh, calm some of these concerns is we're going to work with you on uh, joint regional missile defense. And there was a statement that came out saying that they'll do just that. They've said that every year for the past three years. Uh, And the internal GCC political tensions are nothing to uh, overcome just all that quickly. The alternative to working together, and that's important for... (laughs) Sharing early warning data, especially a big radar and cutter looking into Iran, would be a very nice thing if they shared that with their with their with their neighbors. Um, the alternative to that is everybody going their own way. Uh, even petrodollars are finite, but in a way, that's the path being pursued now: uh, Saudis, Emiratis, etc., getting j- just enough defenses that they think they can uh, defend themselves. That's that's not as effective as folks in the region working together, right? Uh, And so if that kind of GCC joint missile events can be pulled together, at least in the area of early warning uh, and information sharing, that I think would be a very good thing. The joint statement that the White House put out a couple weeks ago also talked about expediting arm cells. Get those uh, FMS, get those defenses out there. uh, so that they can uh, at least defend themselves. The U.S. has missile defenses in the, in the region, UCOM, CENTCOM, but those are limited. Those are very limited. And guess what? The ballistic missile defense review that the Obama administration put out in 2009 said that the demand for defenses are going to far outstrip supply. And you see that already. That those, the, the, those previous options, those previous responses, right, putting them the, on the negotiating table in the first place, that would have been optimal. It's far more expensive to counter these things when you don't do that. It's far more expensive for ourselves and our partners jointly and collectively to counter these things. Um, that doesn't mean we can just forget about it. Unfortunately, that's, I think, where we, uh, where we are uh, together. I'll say also that um, the second half of the missile defense equation is with Europe. And you've seen, actually, you've seen folks in the State Department, you've also seen the Russian uh, Foreign Ministry uh, point out, hey, guys, I I thought the whole thing in Europe, the NATO uh, phase-adaptive SM3-based missile defense, I thought that was just about Iran. And if you see, if you you sign this piece of paper uh, on the nuclear deal, you don't need to worry about that anymore, right? Um, As other folks have pointed out, as we discussed with the breakout timeline, it takes many years to put this in place, um, and again, uh, as uh, Admiral Winnefeld pointed out a couple weeks ago, I think it would be a mistake to walk that back in any way, in terms of what we're doing uh, in NATO and for Europe. Uh, that's a hedge. It's going to need to be there for, for some time, and what Iran will have in five years, it'll take us five years to, or longer to put those things in place. So, so long as the U.S. government position, policy position, is that we're going to outpace the threat, uh, and that's hard, harder than, than, uh, than it would seem, then we're going to have to keep doing what we're doing there.
2: Great. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions, and then I hope to allow um, a little bit more time for the audience to ask some questions as well. <clears throat> the first one I wanted to ask about, um, we didn't hear a whole lot of talk about Iran's um, ICBM program. Uh, the last uh, unclassified government report had assessed that Iran might have an ICBM um, with enough foreign assistance um, able to test one uh, by 2015. Well, here we are. It's 2015. We haven't seen another um, government report come out, um, probably because of the, the timing of that. Uh, but but what do you first? You know, what are your thoughts on how far along Iran's um, ICBM program is? Um, how much of a concern should it be to the United States, um, and um, and and then uh, what should we what should should we be doing about that? And um, somebody wants to I'll go ahead and take that first.
3: Well, I'll just say just on, on the matter on the level of declaratory policy. As I mentioned before, a couple of years ago, the Iranians have said and they've said it several times that they are no longer developing military systems with a range greater than two thousand kilometers. That their main threat is Israel. 2,000 kilometers gives them the ability to hit Israel, and which the implicit message also being to Europe is not to worry. Um, you know, the, the missiles we're developing are, are not going to, you, know, uh, uh, you know, don't have the range to strike you. Um, and I, I think clearly within the context of an um, Iran that is now negotiating or trying to negotiate a, a nuclear deal with the P5 plus one, they've been soft peddling, you know, uh, their activities in this area. And really, it's, it's, in, the sat- it's in the satellite launch vehicles um, you know kind of a realm they 've been you know whatever work they're doing on the ICBMs is kind of falling under that uh, rubric, although if, if i if I remember correctly they've actually i think the the pace of SLV testing has uh, has, has dropped off a bit um, recently, probably again, probably politically uh, uh, motivated but i 'll yield to my colleagues on this if they want to say anything well
4: i, I won 't get into uh, uh speculation in terms of what they are or aren't doing, uh, other than to say, again, this really becomes the long pole in their tent uh, of being a full-up capable nuclear power. Uh, And as as Michael has said, uh, the the way you do this is uh, you pursue things within uh, the existing ranges, and and the moving to a capable uh, solid fuel uh, system in that intermediate Uh, range, uh, which is a recent development that's a huge uh, step forward. Um, And then in terms of ICBMs, uh, very few countries uh, have announced, now we're going to have our ICBM programs. Uh, The countries that do that are countries like us and and, uh, Russia and the Chinese, uh, who under the NPT uh, are are acknowledged to have those programs. The way you normally do this is uh, to say, well, I think I'm going to have a space launch uh, program. And I think I'm really going to concentrate. On uh, on those satellite launches, and we've seen that. Uh, and the problem is that space launch vehicles uh, and uh, satellite uh, launch capabilities uh, really have such a cognate technology uh, with missiles that it's very difficult to distinguish. And that's why uh, the missile technology control regime, uh, for example, does not distinguish. It merely looks at capabilities. So, you know, the the danger here is that the Iranians, if their intent is to do so, and that's a debatable point, but if their intent is to do so, do this in a very deliberate and very clever salami slicing, where first we get a nuclear deal. Uh, Then we, uh, in effect, legitimize uh, the missiles that they have. um, And then they uh, announce a renewed burst of interest um, in reaching for the stars. Uh, And and all of those things add up to, in the end, Uh, a very short breakout of a full-up capability um, at at either uh, a threshold status or at such a time where they decide to to make that bolt um, for that status. So again, the problem is if you look at any one piece of this, it's all very plausible. But you have to put this all together into what does a full-up nuclear power look like. And it, it requires putting all these pieces together. Uh, the fact that you're sort of uh, creeping up on each component of it separately uh, is, is actually a very clever strategy. I'm not saying that's what the Iranians are doing. Uh, I'm just saying that if one were trying to uh, follow in the footsteps of, for example, North Korea uh, or Pakistan, who used uh, this sort of uh, strategy, it, it's a it's a it's a clever way to do it.
3: And they said they want to put a man into space by 2018, but I, I don't know what they're doing in in that regard. So.
6: what well, yeah. It, you know when uh, when it's it's a story probably apocryphal that mm. when Kennedy was asked what the difference was between the, the rocket that put John Glenn into space and the one that the military used uh, he, he responded to attitude and um, you know when the I think especially the uh, uh, the solid point is, is very well taken but the the bottom line I think is what David said that the it's the politics of it it's salami <laughs> slicing uh, and it is um, ultimately their ambition. If they want to be a regional power, it's okay to go slow on that right now. They can get to that later on. Uh, but the question is whether we want to stop them on, on that or whether we want to say, okay, you're, you're going to be the, uh, the, the missile power that will be able to coerce folks in the region. And if we're okay with that, some of this makes sense.
2: I want to touch on um, a point that Tom had made previously that it, it, the administration has, has made this point a few times that what they seem to be really concerned is a nuclear ballistic missile. It's not their ballistic missile in and of itself. So Wendy Sherman previously said in a, um, in a hearing that uh, the, mis- the Iranian missile program would be included in any final comprehensive deal. And then it wasn't just It was just a few weeks later that she testified again. And then she kind of backed away from that. And she said, actually, what, what we're concerned about and what UN Security Council resolutions say about their missile program is we're concerned about nuclear-capable ballistic missiles. And so you could see that she already kind of backed away from that, and then the Iranians came out with statements saying that their missile program was simply off the table. It wasn't up for discussion or negotiation. Um, but even even before, even years before, um, right when President Obama took office, uh, there was the uh, uh, missile defense plan to put um, uh, a ground-based mid-course defense in Europe and the radar in the Czech Republic, and then there was this letter that the administration had sent to the Russians that the media got a hold of that basically said if you the Russians would help put pressure on the Iranians uh, uh, nuclear program that perhaps we wouldn't need this missile defense uh, site in Europe. So you can see that there has been this tie and this, this concern really just with a nuclear ballistic missile. So two questions on that point. Um, one, um, first of all, we've already kind of, uh, I think, settled that we, we think that their longer range missiles are tied to their nuclear program, so you can't really separate them, but just if they were conventional, if they if we really did get a handle on slowing their nuclear program or stopping their nuclear program, um, should we still be concerned enough about their conventional capabilities? Um, that's my first question. And then my second question would be: Then, um, and this might be for Tom, uh, sh- will will we uh, perhaps see a change in policy on our missile defense systems if we, um, you know, if we aren't as concerned about the the nuclear uh, payloads? Then perhaps we can slow down. Uh, uh, protection of the United States homeland and protection of our allies, um, et cetera? Will we see a change in commitment there?
6: In principle, government officials are saying no. In principle, they're saying no. Uh, But I'll tell you, if you're Iran, you're playing a smart game here. Um, Because I think it is going to be harder to mobilize uh, support in the United States with scarce defense dollars uh, when you can't connect at rhetorically can't connect uh, nuclear and, and missile in the same sentence. Having said that, it, they're going to make it a little bit easier for us than that. They're not rolling back their nuclear program, Libya-style uh, or South Africa-style. So the short answer is it's still going to be there. Uh, and what was the first part, the, the, the conventional? I mean, I think, I think the conventional is every bit as important. Uh, I, I think the anti-ship uh, capabilities and frankly, the increasingly precise, the, pre- the in- increasing precision on their what used to be glorified rockets, um, that that we ought to think about. And, f- and you know what? If we don't think about it, it's one thing. But our friends in the region are going to be thinking about it. Uh, and they're, again, putting real dollars behind it.
3: If I could just add just something. Um, part of the, the problem we face is that um, I a- actually do believe that a large part, I mean, Their their missile force is conventional now, and even if they were to eventually get nuclear weapons someday, a large part of it will remain conventional. A, to provide additional flexibility in the event of a crisis, to have a conventional response, in addition to have a non-conventional response, and also as a a penetration aid that you send a salvo of both conventional and uh, non-conventionally armed missiles, nuclear-armed missiles, and and the, the adversary doesn't know which one are the nuclear ones, and, and it, it's, uh, you know, part of a saturation uh, you know, tactic uh, approach to kind of dealing with missile defenses. The, the other part of the problem we deal, we're, we're dealing with here is, you know, a lot of the uh, arms control agreements during the Cold War were bilateral. We gave up part of our capabilities in, re, in return for the Soviets, you know, cutting part of their capabilities. Um, the, the problem we have here is that, you know, if you ask um, or you demand of Iran to limit place in numerical or qualitative limits on their missiles there is no there's there's no regional approach you know they all say well you're at, you're you're demanding of us to cut our capabilities but you're not doing anything to deal with the threat from our point of view the threat and this is why i think i think we probably in the end uh, probably gave up on this um, in, in lot of these two these two reasons because they they do have a conventional role and there is no regional approach at this point this is just kind of uh, P five plus one in Iran, and Iran's going to be making, uh, you know, unilateral cuts in in, in response in return for our sanctions relief. So this is so that's why I'm saying, again, I would say P M D is the area, um, and, and and again, P M D is important. People say, well, that's the past. It's not the past. The P M D provides you with the know how needed for for going ahead to have an effective monitoring program. Which, by the way, I'm not optimistic about what well, kind of half life any kind of monitoring program has, I, I doubt we'll even get for the 10, the 10 to 15 years that you know, the agreement calls for. But for whatever duration it has, you have to have effective monitoring of also the people involved in warhead R&D, production, and the like um, on, on the non-conventional side and we'll be able to watch those people. So um, you know, that, that's hence my approach. I, I, I think that's given, given the administration's preferences and the politics of this thing, that's probably the way to go. I hope we get it. I'm I'm not optimistic.
4: I would just jump in briefly to say absolutely, um, missiles, cruise missiles uh, and and shorter range systems in particular, uh, have a significant conventional capability. From our perspective, that is something we should be worried about. Uh, But I think it is useful to distinguish that from the systems that really move into uh, becoming implausible other than as a nuclear delivery system. Uh, and uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is the official U.S. position on all this has been to draw that line uh, at the uh, MTCR Category 1 level, yeah. which is a fairly low line. Uh, that's uh, any system capable of delivering a 500-kilogram payload to 300 kilometers. So that's, that's sort of uh, an old SCUD-B range uh, system. And that's, that's where we say the line should be drawn. Uh, Even if we were to relent and draw the line much higher, even if we were to draw the line where we've drawn it for ourselves, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, remember, we don't have these systems. We've given them up. The Russians don't have these systems. They've given them up. Um, And they've given them up because they are so inherently associated with nuclear weapons uh, capabilities. And in fact, uh, President Putin has begun to ask pointedly, well, why should we continue to give up on these systems if others are developing them, and if others are developing them associated with nuclear weapons.
2: And of course the Russians have been recently found in violation of them, so. um, All right, thank you. With that, I'd like to take a couple of questions. Um, May, uh, right over here. Uh, Good morning,
5: I'm uh, Professor Glassman. Thank you, I'm I'm Professor Glassman, University of Southern California School of International Relations. With a fine group of Trojans with us this morning, we welcome being included in the audience. Thank you much uh, i 'm going to ask a question about kind of basic physics here. You talk about the uh, the warhead r and d program and what do we know about the iranian warhead the status of the Iranian warhead program uh, to any extent uh, at least in theory, uh, it has a lot to do with the ability to miniaturize It has a lot to do with whether you 're choosing a a gun-type assembly or an implosion device to be a warhead. And I'm not smart enough about those kinds of physics to know. I'm smart enough in one extent, which is to say a warhead assembly can be used and not tested. We've done that. History shows that. I don't know that that's true for an implosion device. Is it possible to miniaturize a a, uh, gun-type assembly to the extent that you can put it on a warhead uh, and have a reasonable degree of confidence that it would work in an operational scenario that would explode uh, without testing such a thing. So it's kind of what we know and what are the inside physics of the warhead itself that constitutes a part of the threat. The delivery vehicle, the propulsion system, the accuracy, all those things are important. But what can you enlighten me a little bit about what you know or what you need to be concerned about the Iranian warhead development effort? Well,
3: I I'll, I will just say there are people actually in the audience who are better qualified to answer this than I am. I'm not a technologist, so I'll, I'll just I'll just tell you what my understanding of what's out in the in the public domain is that I mean this is one of the things that the IEA has been trying to get to the bottom of. There's just a lot of speculation and 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 um, suspicions about uh, a, a possible design which was um, more advanced than the one that the AQ. Uh, Khan Network provided to the Libyans, which was smaller, uh, as I mentioned before, 600 millimeter in diameter, uh, presumably an implosion device, uh, but it's spherical. Um, but uh, beyond that, and, and whether it was tested or not, you know, the, the assumption it was a Chinese design, I, do, I don't know. I don't know, and I will defer to others. The bottom line is I, I would just argue, though, from a uh, strategic point of view, um, on, on from the point of view of the neighbors and, uh, um, and the countries in the neighborhood and ourselves, Um, Whether the design will perform uh, within parameters or not, or will be uh, kind of a a, a sub, uh, uh, you know, whether the the yield will be below what was, you know, the design parameters, it doesn't really matter because nobody wants to find out they were wrong on on those points. And the the bottom line is once a country is, you know, first of all, you know, if you look at the case of Korea, we didn't really know the moment when they were actually, kind of uh, had, a, had a nuclear capability. There was a period in which, you know, did they, repro- did they reprocess the, the plutonium, uh, the, the spent fuel they took from the reactor to extract plutonium? Did they weaponize it? So there's a gray area that exists for a number of years. And once you're in that gray, gray area, you're, you're, you are treated as a kind of a, you know, kind of a, a, a de facto nuclear weapon state. And I think that's, from the political point of view, that, that's the critical, you know, uh, point you're in. And Iran is kind of pushed just bef- before that. So the fact that we know or we, it, it, there seems to be a, a lot of information that they did weapons R&D work, that they may have gotten the design, um, that they have sufficient material now for, you know, six to eight weapons. I mean, all the, all the pieces are in place and that gives them in itself quite a bit of uh, cachet. And that's why, you know, what the negotiations are all about. It's not about Preventing them from becoming a nuclear state. It's you know how far can we move them from you know from that uh, from a breakout capability. And that, that's really what it's about. So in a way, as, as my colleague said, it's you know confirming and legitimizing their status as a uh, nuclear threshold state, uh, which is a very different thing. And it, you know I would argue as a threshold state you get a lot of the benefits of being actually a weapon state without a lot of the costs. You're already almost there. And at least I, I, I would argue, you know, the last point, and I've I been talking long, I'm sorry. Um, you know, people say, how does the world change when Iran gets the bomb? I would argue the world doesn't change when Iran gets the bomb. The world changes when the neighbors conclude that if they decide to get the bomb, they can get it. and then they, uh, and, Or at least that's the way that the world changes in, in terms of the, the way Iran looks at it itself. And I think they're already there in a way. Um, Ms. Khamenei has said, we don't want the bomb, but if we were to decide to get it, nobody could stop us. And I think the greater assertiveness we've seen in their regional policy recently is born of confidence from that belief. Um.
6: You know, I I would just say it's at that point when you bring it back to missiles. um, Then the other folks in the region are going to go on a missile-buying spree, too. The Saudis are apparently already there. Other folks are hedging their bets on that. Where is MTCR, where is missile nonproliferation at that point? Is it dead?
2: I think that's an incredibly important point. I did want to tease that out a little bit more, too, because that's something that those more on the arms control heavy side of things and folks on the more kind of hawkish side have agreed on is this nonproliferation efforts. What can we do to prevent the spread and, sell, you know, and the sale of, of missiles? And um, I think excluding these missiles from the deal actually does kind of um, implicitly uh, condone or endorse their missile program in some way, even though you will have administration officials say, yes, but U.N. Security Council resolutions still uh, forbid them. Um, but um, And then my last question I'd like the panel um, to address, if you could briefly. Once this deal, what, if, if there is a deal that has been reached, what will we lose in terms of our leverage and ability then to turn around <laughs> and try to restrain and control Iran? A lot has been said. Once we have a deal, there's going to be lots of money injected back into the Iranian economy, and then um, you know they will be able to continue their terrorism efforts and, and, and every all the political subversion that they're they're doing in the region. Um, but what will this be able to do for their missile program?
4: Let me let me jump on that uh, <coughs> if I may. I think first of all, as I said in my comments, I think this really represents a significant flaw of omission uh, that doesn't get at a very legitimate question of, is a deeply flawed agreement better than no agreement at all? And I think the question you're getting at is that larger question. Uh, It is not inevitable that this will legitimize uh, the missile programs uh, just by their absence. However, uh, if that is not going to happen implicitly, it's not going to happen by fairy dust. Um, And so it would behoove, and I was struck uh, by the congressman's remarks, in terms of if we do move forward with this deal uh, as it seems to be shaping up, uh, my own view is it would behoove the United States to make a a significant parallel effort to redouble uh, its commitment to missile proliferation and to stress the need, in fact, not to uh, let up on that Uh, but to really focus on it, uh, using the MTCR, uh, using vehicles such as the Proliferation Security Initiative, uh, ensuring that those U.N. uh, mandates uh, remain intact um, and get attention. Can we do that? Absolutely. Will we do that? That's a political decision uh, for this administration and for whoever comes in.
6: Very simple. How do you go back and ask for seconds when you've already released the sanctions? I I don't see how we go back and do that.
3: And they're pretty, pretty far advanced. Um, they made, they've made a number of impressive um, advances in the, in the past decade and a half. And even if their capabilities don't match their claims, which is almost certainly the case, they still do have uh, some very robust capabilities in this area. So in a way, the, the horses is out of the barn in, in this regard.
4: I, it, sorry, I would argue there are a lot of horses. yeah out of the barn. And there's there are still some yeah, horses no, you're right. You're right. that are not out. We you're are right. very late in this game, um, but we are not too late to impede the most worrisome capabilities, um, but we're very close yeah. to that threshold. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Th- this is the point yeah. where if we, if we even just say, well, let's not worry about this for a while, um, that could be too long. I mean, we are, we are at a very late stage uh, in terms of trying to impede uh, those, those most Threatening of Iranian missile capabilities.
2: Thank you so much. I think this was an incredibly instructive panel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please uh, join me in thanking our. our